You're listening to First Block, a Notion series where founders and executives from the world's leading companies tell us what it was like to navigate the many firsts of their startup journey and what they learned from that experience. I'm Akshay Kothari, Notion's co-founder and COO. Today, our guest is Parker Conrad, co-founder and CEO of Rippling. Rippling lets you easily manage your employees' payroll, benefits, expenses, devices, apps, and more, all in one place. Great to meet you. Yeah, great to thanks see for you. coming. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for doing this for us. Our, I think our audience is very excited to hear from you today. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. So I think maybe a good place to start would be just like the beginning. I think we'd love to hear, I think one thing you said in a recent interview, you, you sort of said people should not start a company. Uh, why is that? What's the biggest misconception about starting a company that you think most people don't see? So I started, like I, I feel like I, I've done three startups and, um, and I felt like, like my first one, I did because I was naive and had no idea what I was getting into, which is I think is true for most people. And and the next two, I felt like I had literally no other options. Um, and, liter- and, and, and and if I had like really any other option, I probably wouldn't have done it. And and I think what what's hard about it is um, there are so so many things that are um, like very um, sort of like soul sucking and, dist- and 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 people talk about. Uh, and most of the time it, it doesn't work out and, and you fail. And, and I think there's, sometimes that's kind of glamorized that, you know, oh, like, you know, like you, you fail, but like you get up and you keep going. You learn so much from your failures. And um, I've actually, like, I have found that I, I don't think I've learned a lot from things that haven't worked out and uh, except how much it sucks. Um, and uh, and and there's just there's just enormous you know personal cost to those failures. You know it's it destroys relationships. It um, you know it's psychologically I think really like you know um, really painful um, impacts your health. That entire process was really hard. You know I it um, I started my first company with um, one of my roommates from college. And the sort of slow grinding failure like really destroyed that relationship. Um, and um, you know, when I eventually left, I mean, I got uh, he was a groomsman in my wedding, and then I got fired like the week between my wedding and my honeymoon. It was like super awkward, you know, from you know after this sort of long process and long falling out. Um, and so most most of these experiences have just like not been sort of super positive in terms, and I think everyone sort of thinks that they will be. Um, and that's, that's, so that's why my advice is always like, don't do it. Now that advice, like it never really sticks because people, um, you know, I, I tell people like, don't do it, it's a mistake. And that, that only seems to like re-energize people, you know, and make, make you know, it's sort of like, almost like a challenge, like you're not tough enough for it or something like that. But I, but I genuinely mean it that I think, the the opportunities are much better, you know, if you can be sort of an executive at at a at a company or an early employee at a company that does well, um, or just even play a critical role. Like you know, the 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 financial upside makes a lot more sense. It's not like quite as large, but like you know, you're you can pick companies that where the probability and the odds are of success are much higher. And I think just like everything else about it is like, um, 
you know, sort of, uh, you know, sort of like much healthier and more positive from a lifestyle perspective. But obviously, like rippling seems to be working out so far, and I'm sort of super grateful for that. And like, it's enormous amount of fun as well uh, when it's working. So maybe, maybe like take us a few years ago. I guess you've done two startups before. You feel this way, but you do go ahead and start rippling again. Uh, yeah. So what was going through your head? It felt like, feels like, for you, was that just the last option, and you you had to do it, or? Yeah, I mean, I had you know like there there was. Um, as you know, and probably most people know, there there was just this like really explosive ending to my you know at my last company where um, you know I was forced out of the company by Andreessen Horowitz and David Sachs, um, who was my then COO as part of that. And I sort of realized like, man, there was this this thing that I thought Zenefits was going to become, even even if I wasn't there to see it through, that was clearly not going to happen. And so. You know, I felt like I, I didn't really have any other options. I felt like um, there was this enormous opportunity that, you know, I, I sort of understood the market. Um, I knew exactly what people wanted. And, and like, I talked to my co-founder, Persona, and said, look, you know, there's this, like, there's this, there's $100 billion, like, sitting right there in the street. And no one else can see it except for us. And all we have to do is like walk over and like pick it up. And so that was why, you know, I felt like I didn't really have sort of other options. Like it was like everything was like pointing me at this like one particular thing. But yes, I was, I desperately wanted to like not, you know, do that again. Um, so my like sincere hope is that, you know, I don't like if, if I do another company after Rippling, like something's gone like very wrong. Like hopefully that doesn't, uh, I'm not in that position again. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your early conversation with Prasanna? Like how, uh, sounds like you all started Zenefits together and then uh, also did Rippling together. Uh, what was- You know, Rippling was an extension um, or, or an evolution, I think, of what, what we, we tried to do at my last company. He was a little bit surprised, like, why do you want to do something like in the same area or yeah. in a similar area? And that was that was sort of why that I was like, look, you know, fundamentally, like as a, you know, as a product, like Zenefits, like the concept was was correct. Um, you know, it's why it grew as quickly as it did. It sort of like came apart for a bunch of reasons that really had nothing to do with like the core Idea. sort of product, like thesis. Um, um, you know, that were about you know sort of weird in, investor stuff and you know, internal conflict and like, and, and obviously like, you know, a bunch of, of, of sort of internal issues as well. But like fundamentally it was like, look, like this is a recipe that's going to work. Can you talk a little bit about um, maybe the fundraising process this time around, third time around? And I'm really <clears throat> excited to go deeper into the product stuff, especially around like all the different things that you've built today, but where you started. But, but maybe yeah. before we go there, let's talk a little bit about fundraising. How was it different <clears throat> doing it the third time? Actually, so Mike, Mike Vernal, who ended up leading around from Sequoia at our Series C, um, who's, a, who's a close friend that, that I have enormous respect for and is really incredible. Um, Mike sort of was, you know, or Sequoia was talking to us about sort of each of our rounds from seed all the way up until when they eventually invested. And at, in our seed round, I remember Mike told me, he said, look, um, the, the view, the partnership's view is that there's one reason to do this round 
and there's one reason not to do this round, and they're both the same reason, which was which was like my my involvement in the company. And so I think that was generally uh, that was generally the sort of dynamic, um, sort of spoken or unspoken. Mm. Um, there were. Um, most of the, I mean, the seed investors in my last company, like almost all of them ended up like just immediately putting money into, um, into rippling, you know, including like most of the folks in sort of the broader YC network. And so yeah. like Y Combinator was just an enormous supporter of mine. Um, uh, and I don't think, I think it would have been a lot harder for me, like, you know, had, you know, PG and Sam Altman and Gary Tan and sort of all of the other folks not sort of really like circle the wagons and said, no, like we, we sort of like understand like what happened here and we're like very much on, on team Parker. And so I'm like enormously grateful to them um, for doing that. Um, and so like the, the fundraising was like, weirdly it was like very easy but very bifurcated um it wasn't it wasn't challenging to raise to raise you know at, at the seed round we ended up raising a very substantial seed finance we raised about 17 million dollars in seed financing you know right around the time that we did yc um and um and 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 then and obviously but obviously there were some people that were like no way um and so i remember like you know, for example, when we did our Series A, it was again like very controversial. We had, um, you know, we we again like you know were fortunate that there were a lot of investors that really wanted to put money in, and we had a lot of term sheets and had great investors in in Kleiner Perkins, but also um, there were a bunch of firms that that pulled out of the process. So actually, connecting this back to I think where you started, which is like you know people should shouldn't start coming. I, I sort of wonder like if you hadn't started rippling. Would that mean we are just using these like really old school products? Does just the world require this naivete or almost like ignorance uh, to drive this like creative destruction in some ways? Because uh, it seems like even for you, I think there's hundreds of reasons for not to do it again. But in some ways, like the startup world is probably grateful that you built good software in, in, into this world. Well, I don't know if I would I would go that go that far, but like, um, but but yeah, I think that like, you know, I do think that um, I think that like, you know, we like I I started Ripley in part because there was this sort of thing that I wanted to exist, and like, it was very clear that it was not going to, you know, like, Zenovitz wasn't going to do it, like Gusto was, you know, sort of not moving in that direction. Like there were there were just no other companies that were sort of going. So it felt like there was this. There was this like hole that like we could plug, you know, very very uniquely, and that look that part of it is like fun and exciting. Yeah. Um, you know, I like I enjoy that, um, um, and I don't want to make it sound like, man, it's like ugh, like you know, life sucks. You know, like I I really enjoy like the work that I do, and I love the people that I work with at at Ripley, and I really enjoy the product that we're building, and so it so it, it is a lot of fun as well. Um, but I, I, I think you're right that like, you know, a lot of a lot. Of, I think there are a lot of people that start companies like because they're naive about like what they're facing. And I think some of that um, I think that's true both on the product side that sometimes people start companies and, and they and you, you, you often get people that are new to markets um, that start the most successful companies because the people that are new to the market like 
are just like too uninformed about all the reasons why it won't work. Mm. You know, like they just don't know all of the reasons why this isn't possible. Uh, and the people who have like worked in industries for long periods of time, like often end up not being the sort of real like source of innovation yeah. because like they already sort of take for granted, you know, all of the things, yeah. all of the reasons why this would never ever work. Um, and so, you know, like I think you, you see that again and again. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, it probably is required, but like, man, I think that it like, it ends up chewing up and spitting out a lot of people. All right, let's talk about compound startup. Uh, yeah. I love this phrase. Um, I guess I kind of understand. So, so today, Rippling is the suite of products, right? Like I think there's a cloud for three different functions. Uh, uh, and it seems like, at least from what you've said, like you probably had this vision even back then, especially as you think about the people graph. Uh, so how did you break down to like where to start? Like which product to first build? And then how does this all come together? And how did you think about doing something simple versus like actually building the suite together? So we started with um, <clears throat> three things. We started with um, like you know HRIS and payroll, which is maybe a couple things like you know already right in there. Um, identity, so what people would call you know single sign-on IAM that sort of stuff, um, and then and then lastly device management um, for you know computers, laptops, things like that, and. Um, the reason we did that is I start, we start off really looking at onboarding checklists for companies. Like what mm. were the things that like, you know, most companies had these sort of documents that they would maintain, perhaps in Notion or, you know, in, in, in other systems, like all the things that needed to happen when you hired a new employee. Yeah. And I, like I viewed that as like this, these were roadmaps or like, you know, that sort of identified all of the hidden places that where information about employees was located within your company. Like these were all, because by definition, when you added a new employee, there were places that needed to know about that employee or, or, or systems or, you know, and that, and that was, that became your onboarding checklist yeah. for a business. And so this idea of like unifying employee data across the business started with, you know, those checklists. And, and we thought that like, you know, sort of like app access and, and single sign on, um, uh, you know, device management, and then sort of all of the sort of core HRS and payroll stuff. That was like the the clearest way to cover like eighty percent of those checklists for a lot of companies. Um, and so that was how we started. Um, Can you talk a little bit about device management? Like, did you all debate maybe just starting with HR only versus this idea of app access and device management being part of it? Because when I remember when Rippling came out, I think it was sort of interesting that you sort of also had HR and IT. Yeah, um, and it seemed like it was by design. You wanted that to be the starting point. Yeah, so I think that like, um, and so this is like one of one of the things that I talk about when I talk about compound startups, is that one of the problems with sort of the kind of conventional wisdom about point SaaS of like yeah. building you know individual applications that are extremely narrow, is that is that from a market perspective, a lot of that's picked over, and so yeah. I think a lot of a lot of companies have ended up occupying local minima. Um, and so now like any sort of point, point SaaS application that you can think of, there are three or four people yeah. like in that market, um, you know, fighting over that market. And, and now, you know, like there are these sort of global minima that are kind of harder to get to, but that I absolutely think that the best product 
is actually the compound product. Yeah. Um, you know, it's where things are sort of deeply integrated, fully interoperable, take advantage of um, like a, 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 some really deep investments in platform capabilities that can be shared across applications. Um, the, the question was almost like, how do we like skate to where the puck is going or mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, figure out like leapfrog the roadmaps for a lot of competitors to kind of get ahead of where, where people are headed. And that's a lot of like, I think from a product perspective, I think that's a very important thing to do. And it's something that we, we try and do today is think about, you know, when we build things, not like how do we build things that kind of like, you know, get us to parity, you know, like there, there are places in Rippling where we believe that we have product gaps and, and, and sort of when we try and build that instead of like, okay, we can close that gap. It's like, how do we take maybe sometimes even a little more time and, and really smash it with a sledgehammer and turn it from like a gap to something where we just like beat and destroy like every company in the market on, on that thing that was previously like a, a weakness of ours. Um, so like a great example of this is like global. Um, you know, two years ago <clears throat> at Rippling, when we looked at sort of what were the major reasons that we would lose with sort of much larger companies one of the biggest reasons was global, that companies would say, well, we need you know, more global capabilities. And um, they would look at systems that had some, usually some very lightweight global capabilities. They had you know, maybe some localized types, um, a few sort of like custom fields by country that they would track, and that was it. And we said like, no, 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 we're gonna like really fully globalize all of Rippling, we're gonna have you know, yeah, a fully global HRS, but that also means, you know, local, you know, like local policies for overtime and our time tracking system, local uh, courses in local languages that are locally compliant for anti-harassment training country by country, like, um, you know, rules for PTO, for parental leave, for like all these things, like in every country, every province, every jurisdiction, you know, for like 50 countries around the globe, but then also like, you know, local Ben Admin software, so you can enroll in, you know, benefits in Canada and the UK and Australia and you know Europe, wherever you are. And then the sort of real like piece de resistance was um, true global payroll mm. um, and global what's called EOR, which is for people that don't have their own entities in these countries. And Ripley's actually was the first and really still the only company that's built like a single global payroll system. And so Rippling is like the first company where like literally you can have a single pay run, you can have some employees are like in the US, in the UK, in, in India, in Canada, in France, in Australia, and you know, like I think there's like, you know, 20 different countries now that we support, and you hit run once. And like, you know, immediately, you know, taxes are calculated, net pay, you know, is is there? You hit go, and like, you know, it's it's on its way. Are you still the uh, single administrator for all of Rippling? I am. Like, you're still pressing the run button. Absolutely, and and um, you know, I keep taking on like new responsibilities there. Um, so I, you know, run payroll for you know, we have now over two thousand employees in about a dozen different countries. You know, I run payroll for all of them. I manage benefits. So like I kicked off open enrollment for our company um, in the US, in Canada, um, 
uh, just earlier this week, I think, I think yesterday, actually. I, um, I also approve expenses for the entire company, everything over $10. Um, uh, we have an expense management system. Um, so it's, it's not like, I'm not just, it's not only that I'm crazy, um, but, but it, it forces me to sort of really use the spend management system. So it's a, in our finance cloud issues, corporate cards, um, expense reimbursements, bill pay. Um, and we, so we just um, switched over to our own bill pay system. So that means I manage all the, like, you know, all the bill payments as well. The challenge, one of the things I think that's like great as a client and is that you know at Rippling we're um, there's this constant product effort to make that work, and so it, it requires it requires the product and engineering team to like systematically like compress the amount of like work required to do all this stuff using Rippling, and it has to get like lower and lower and lower over time as our organization gets bigger and more complex, and we start adding in new products for me to continue to be able to do it. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why you see, we were talking about this earlier, but you know, we look at, you, know, you can look at companies on LinkedIn, um, you know, really any business between two, you know, up to 2,000 employees, and at, at any stage of growth, the companies that use Rippling consistently have half the headcount in HR, IT, and finance as businesses that really use any other system. A 25-person company you know, might have like on average, um, I think it's like, you know, 1.6 people in those functions um, if they're not on Rippling, and it's like 0.8 people on average if they're on Rippling. And, you know, at 1,000 employees, you have an average of, um, I think it's 42 people in those functions. We exclude recruiting, but like all other, you know, 42 people in those functions if you're on any system other than Rippling and 26 on average if you're in Rippling. And, and I think it's because of like the way I use the product that that happens because we're constantly making it easier and easier and easier to do this stuff. Yeah, I love the, I mean, I love both the concepts of just this idea that a few different systems are coming together into like the global minima. I think that's a great idea for people to think about. I feel like a lot of the companies sort of build toasters, like, you know, one-off like use case for SaaS. And I think it sort of gets you to just like spiral down to the lowest cost or something. Whereas in, in your particular case, even if each one of the pillars might, be, might have some uh, product gaps, it seems like the fact that you have all those three together allows you to do things that you can't even imagine doing in, in other systems. Uh, I think that's right. And I th the other thing, like everyone always wants to believe or you were inclined to believe because it's like so ingrained that if you do it in this way, it means the product's like less good or less complete. Um, I really don't think that that's yeah. the case. And the reason is, is that, you know, when we spend a lot of time thinking across product categories and verticals, um, and when you do that, you start to notice a lot of repeated patterns. Um, and so you end up being able to build software in this different way where um, you know, Rippling's architecture is that we have this data layer on the bottom, which we call the employee graph. And then we have this layer that's our platform layer um, that we, we sometimes refer to as middleware, but it's, it's basically capabilities. It's things like reporting and analytics, role-based permissions, workflows, approvals, custom policies, like there are a whole bunch of other things in there now at this point. And then on top of that, you build these applications. And what you find is like, 
so many of the things that people end up viewing as what's the long tail, what are the enterprise features, what are the things we really need as we grow, it, it ends up being a very similar set of things yeah. across seemingly very disparate verticals. And so at, at Rippling, we're constantly trying to find what are the capabilities that we can pull out you know, that, that sort of the team that's building this application needs this thing, but that actually we're like, man, this other thing over there also needs that. Yeah. And, and we're like, and oh my gosh, like actually it's not like blocking sales for the other applications in Rippling other than those two, yeah. but like it would really differentiate the product because no one has this in yeah. those cases and it would be useful. And so how do we take that, yank it down into the platform layer, build as a platform capability, but then also just like go like 10 times deeper, you know, and build it in a way more robust fashion and build, make it much more configurable, you know, cover all of the use cases, all the sort of, you know, all the things that people need. And um, you get this benefit that actually my CEO, my COO calls going abroad, which is like by building these things centrally, they need to accommodate sort of like critical use cases across a lot of different product lines. And, and what that does is it forces you, it actually makes them way better for every single one. Yeah. Because you end up finding these use cases that are critical for one product that end up not being critical for another one, but actually like really nice to have yeah. and, and sort of incredibly useful if you're gonna build them. Sort of like the way that you know, if you when you one of the things that I think you get when you travel is that you you sort of see all the things that are like slightly different, but you know maybe like a, a little bit similar, but not quite in terms of how things work in that country, and it gives you this new understanding and appreciation of like how things might work or fit together. And so we end up doing that across a lot of different product areas, which I think reinforces product quality like across all of them. Love it. I think there's another benefit in that like people are actually all in the same system, I guess, uh, compared to like people being in three different systems, people not having the empathy for the other side. Um, actually, a lot of this also has nice parallels to how we think about building in Notion, uh, right? Which is um, actually having a single system for doing a lot of the knowledge work that you do uh, has yeah. some amazing benefits. Um, and everything's interoperable. Every, all the, you know, all the, you know everything yeah. seamlessly works together. And um, yeah, I think, you know, for, for a long time, the conventional wisdom in SaaS has been that you want these like narrow point solutions. And I think we've been building software wrong for 20 years. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of like um, if, if you bought a car um, and instead of buying a car, you bought like a carburetor from one manufacturer and steering wheel from the next, from the other, and like a chassis and some seats from a third and fourth. And then you took it home and like assembled it in your garage and like sort of wrapped it up in duct tape and like then started trying to drive it down the street. And like, it, it, of course it would be terrible. Um, yeah. Like, of course things would be sort of falling off as you're going down the road. But like, that's how companies buy software for the most part today. Going back, I guess, can you talk a little bit about your first customer? You know, how did you find them? You know, what did you tell them? What, how did you sell them Rippling? Man, I'm trying to remember who was the actual first customer at Rippling. Um, what we did is, um, so we went through YC and there was a certain point where we just needed a bunch of people to kind of like a bunch of companies so we could start paying people and payroll and pressure testing the system. And so we did this deal 
with companies in our batch where we said, look, we need a bunch of people really quickly. Anyone that signs up and runs payroll with us in the next two weeks, Rippling will be like free for you forever. Um, and, uh, and there were a bunch of companies that signed up and some of them went on to be like quite substantial. Maybe related, can you talk a little bit about maybe like, uh, like the first customer who churned, like how did you sort of like think about that? What did, you ch what did it change in terms of how you build the product and roadmap? And I say this as like, yeah. you know, entrepreneurs are gonna go through that and like how should they yeah, think no, of about course. it? I, so I'm trying. I don't remember exactly like who the first customer that churned was, <clears throat> but um, and I don't. I don't remember like exactly what the reason was, um, but um, certainly like you know like what what I found is that most of the churn that we that we've had as a company has been about sort of m missing things like gaps in the product, and in a weird way, it sort of reinforces the central value prop, like. Yeah. You know when we've lost when we lose customers, uh, other than if we screw up, which you know hopefully doesn't happen a lot, but we're we're not like immune from that. <clears throat> it tends to be because there's um, there's like a module that someone needs or like a critical capability that they don't have, and so like to me it's like well it, it needs to be like more all in one. There's stuff that's missing from the bundle. Um, so early on, the the clearest thing that we had like that was actually benefits. Um, so I, I started Rippling, you know, uh, my previous company had been very focused on benefits and was just like had so much scar tissue from that. I incorrectly said, we're not going to touch benefits at Rippling. You know, so we did, you know, I eventually came around and actually my team really convinced me of this because I was like the last one to be convinced mm. of this. And one of our, two of our early employees, actually this guy named Ashwin and this guy named Sriram, um, took this on and really built it and made it happen. And it was like a huge like overnight sea change for the company. Like once we got all that in place, that was when things really started to take off because it closed this like critical gap. Um, today, we have actually something very similar for a different set of companies. Um, which is scheduling. And so it is like one of the biggest like internal R&D efforts for us right now is like building that product. And I think in very much in rippling fashion, when we build it, you know, we don't view it as like, okay, well, what do we need to do to like close the gap and like staunch the bleeding and like, you know, like make this go away. Instead, what we're trying to do, and it's taking a little bit longer, is we're trying to look at what are the most difficult scheduling cases out there that really just push the limits of all of these systems. Yeah. You know, and like, I think that like that, what it does is it, it like the, the easy way would be to take the approach of like, well, you know, it's like the all-in-one product. Like, you know, you're not gonna get like all the features and like, and you inevitably it fails. Cause like you really, the all, the compound thing only works if you're, you're forcing yourself to be as good and to find a way to, to beat the point solution products at their own game. And like, and, and, and like whether that, you know, and that's often by making, by winning on, the, on a lot of the platform capabilities, finding ways to do things in the platform layer instead of in the application layer, or just forcing yourself to like really go all the way in the application layer and like get the data model right. Um, but it's often in like finding those extreme cases that you can kind of you sort of reveal to yourself like what is the what is the actual data model for this system? What's the right data model um, to kind of get this right and like nail it? Um, 
and so that's that's sort of like how we how we sort of think about building products. Actually, one related to question to this is like at this point, like how do you um, think about sequencing uh, the features, right? Because you probably have all these different set of customers, different needs. Um, I think when you're building a compound startup, you probably could go like 10, 20 different directions, right? Um, so is there a formula that you all use as a way to sort of think about like this is the thing we build next and then this thing follows after that? Yeah. So I think there there's a few things. Um, one is like what are, what are the things like we look a lot at like you know why do we lose and why do customers churn and like that gap analysis is like very revealing that we need to like you know so that would be like a big reason why we're building scheduling for example the other one is um, the, the other thing that we look at is I think that you know compound startups in general whether it's rippling or other businesses um, they have five specific advantages over point solution competitors. And those advantages are first, that they're, the products are much more deeply integrated with each other. Yeah. Second, that the products are much more integrated with some underlying sort of data set. Um, in our case, like the employee graph, but it might be something else in other systems. And that unlocks a lot of product capability. Like there are usually new features or product capabilities that arise as a result of that. The third, which is I think the most critical, is this this ability to build like at the platform layer where you can abstract out some things that are repeated across products and build it much better. Um, and so um, you can win on sort of your platform capabilities. Um, the fourth is that you can preserve a common UX. Um, so like things, you know, someone knows how to use one of your products, they immediately probably know how to use one of the others. Like a lot of the UX is conserved, they're or sort of immediately familiar with it. And lastly, there are sort of pricing and contracting advantages that you have because yeah. you can amortize sales and marketing, R&D costs, things like that over multiple SKUs instead of having to like bake it all into like one of them. Um, and so those are the five things. Those are the five ways that you win. Um, and so I think you want to look at verticals where those five things tend to be maximized and, and do them roughly in the order that they are maximized. And yeah. so you want to look for um, product areas where integration with your other products matters, where integration with your the underlying source of truth in your system you know, unlocks a lot of product capability, where the, the middleware capabilities, the platform layer, you know, things like analytics and role-based permissions and workflow automations, the specific ones that you've invested in matter in that new product area and are gonna allow you to build a better product as a result of that than sort of your point SaaS competitors. You want products with this, you know, all else being equal, the same buyer or an existing buyer in, in your system, because that that's that conserved UX doesn't matter if it's a completely different person. Um, and all else being equal, you want products where there's an opportunity to sort of sort of play games with pricing, um, to sort of win on a pricing perspective with the bundle vis-a-vis um, -vis, like point solution competitors. And so that's that's the other thing that we th those set of things are the things that we look at. All right, so just closing it out, maybe two quick questions. Um, uh, first one, describe a day in the life of Parker Conrad. Uh, how do you start your day? Like, do you have any rituals, customs that keep you going? <clears throat> um, so normally I start out, um, so I've got to get my kids out of bed, which 
you know, usually is like a chore because um, they tend to stay up too late and so it's hard to get them out of bed. Same in my household. Yeah, so like, you know, I, I make coffee and then I take them to school. So um, we have one of those utility bikes with the kid on the kids on the back and I, my um, sort of, the way my wife and I divide stuff up, like I, I do school drop off, you know, usually. So I take them to school about eight o'clock and then, um, and then come back and, and head into work. Um, and, uh, you know, at work, I, I try and keep meetings like, you know, pretty light. Like I, I don't, I don't do well when like my calendar gets, gets blocked up with meetings. Like, um, um, but I have like a lot, um, a lot of stuff that I do that ends up, um, work stuff that ends up filling out the rest of the time. Like some of it is like, you know, stuff on, on Slack. A lot of it ends up being sort of like, like being the rippling admin. So like, you know, I've got, um, you know, a bunch of bills I got to go pay after this and like, you know, like, uh, you know, expense reports to approve and payroll to run and like that kind of stuff. So that actually takes up a decent amount of time, but it actually takes up more time for me because I'm always doing it as a, as a product exercise. So I spend a little bit of time doing it and a little bit of time going to the individual product and engineering teams and sort of, you know, either complaining about things or suggesting changes or, you know, trying to get things like, you know, reformed around the way I'm using the product. And then, yeah, I usually, I usually leave, go home around, around seven o'clock. I'm in the office five days a week. I hate working at home. Um, like just really, <laughs> really dislike it. Um, um, and so then I'm, I'm, you know, come home around seven o'clock. Um, usually uh, either, uh, I, I do all the cooking in, in our household too. Um, so uh, my wife does a lot of stuff, but I, the things I handle are kid drop off and cooking. And so then, you know, usually either cook dinner, or sometimes order DoorDash, um, and um, you know, say goodnight to the kids, and, and then I'm usually in bed pretty early. So I don't know. Oh, uh, I hope my wife is not watching this because I, I do not cook after a long mirror. <laughs> <laughs> you probably do other things though. Yeah, I do other yeah, things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Last question: If you were to write a book about what's gotten to your to this point of your career, what would you title it? Huh. That's interesting. I maybe. Um, Maybe uh, like amplitude. I think that like my my career has had. Um, I've just had some like really big highs and some really big lows, and so I, I just sometimes feel like my um, you know just the the sort of the sinusoidal curve is like much you know seems to have like much bigger swings or has had much bigger swings for me. Um, you know, really starting you know. Um, very early on in, you know, in high school, college. Um, and then obviously, like, since then, I've, you know, like, famously, I've had a lot of, you know, both really big professional successes and really sort of deep and awful, you know, professional failures as well. Um, and so, um, you know, there's been a lot of that sort of, like, up and down uh, for me in my career. Well, Parker, thank you for joining us today. Lots of, course, of amazing insights. Yeah. Cool. Thanks a bunch. First Block is brought to you by Notion for Startups. We at Notion care deeply about startups and founders, and we hope these stories inspire you to keep building. To learn more about how we are supporting startups, please visit notion.com startups.